Hey, I'm Will Ross. And he's Devin Scott. We're Film Formally. If you're listening to this before December 26, 2020, come join us for our Boxing Day Zoom hangout. We're going to meet, chat over video. We're going to talk about the year in movies. We're going to talk about other stuff. It's going to be nice and laid back, so it'll be nice to see all your faces there. You can find a link at filmformally.com in the show notes of this episode, or you can find it at twitter.com. We've got an Eventbrite set up. Come RSVP, let us know you're going to be there. In the meantime, welcome to Film Formally. Back here at Devin's behest, I was going to retire after his masterful uh, little two-minute episode with his hot takes last time. I don't know why I'm here anymore. I was sure you'd veto it. It was such a silly idea. But I didn't. I encouraged (laughs) him to make that the podcast, but he has kindly (laughs) given meaning back to my life and insisted that we continue the podcast in its current form. Do you realize that this means at least once a season you're going to get an auditune reverie from me? That you, mean, you know that, right? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Okay, Q&A. Yeah, so this is our holiday Q&A. You might have heard about it from such places as our Twitter feed. Yep. Um, yeah, we're going to answer your questions. We got some good ones. We got some other ones. <laughs> Santa brought you some answers. The first question that was asked is a really good one. Somebody asked what the end of our outro to every episode is about, uh, and it's important. So we're going to do this one up front. The end of those outros um, where I talk about how this podcast is recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, uh, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations, uh, that's a land acknowledgement. Our listeners in Canada will probably know what it is. Uh, Others may be more unfamiliar with it. Because we're in Vancouver, BC, Canada, we live and work on the lands of Indigenous peoples, including those nations that get mentioned in our acknowledgement. Um, the lands of these nations have actually never been ceded to settlers. Regardless of that, it's important to do a land acknowledgement, um, whether the land is ceded or not. And it's a way to acknowledge uh, that issue, in our case of the unceded territory, but also related issues surrounding stolen land and genocide and colonial governance. So in our show notes, we've included a link to native-land.ca, which is a site that allows you to see whether you live or work in a traditional territory of indigenous peoples. Um, it's it's community-driven, so they're not, quote-unquote, official borders, but it's a useful resource. And uh, this might also, uh, the fact that we got this question probably is a good occasion to uh, slightly tweak the outro to clearly reflect that, because... Part of the point of it is to encourage people to be more aware of these issues and to think more about colonialism. So if people just aren't understanding what it is, then it could use a little tweaking. How did you get started in film? Should I go first or should you? You should, because you got started in film before I did, really. No. Yeah. (laughs) No. You made like Good, the Bad, and the Ugly recreations in school. I made made my first film when I was 11. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was a... What was it? it was called Mission Difficult. Um, it's good. It's on YouTube. It's <laughs> mastered to VHS. The title reflects the stopping point for your sense of humor ever since. <laughs> really? Go on. I mean, you would still call a movie that today pretty oh, much. Oh, of course. Um, <laughs> but that doesn't mean I haven't grown. I mean, look. Um, look at the auto-tune montage. Um, <laughs> 
But no, my, my actual answer to that is that, like, I got started. Really? Like, yeah. I, I, I still feel like I don't have a good idea of what my career is. That's my honest answer. Um, so even saying to myself, I got started, I'm like, what, really? My, my, my film career feels like a hodgepodge of stuff that's non-starters right now. And that's not to diminish any of the work I feel proud of, which is a lot of work that I've done with people. But uh, yeah, I just feel like, but I guess answering the spirit of the question, yeah, I, I, I think I, I, I watched Fantasia when I was like six. I knew you were going to answer something about your film career or whatever, and uh, I thought I'd just point out, yeah, that's not the question. How did you get started ah. in film? Well, when I was four, my parents took me to The Lion King, and I ran out screaming in the first 10 minutes. My second memory was seeing Twister at the age of six in the cinema, and I loved it. It was great. Right. Uh, yeah. No, Not scary at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's a tough thing to get started because I... I've always just liked movies a lot. Um, I, I, you know, one of my most cherished childhood memories is every week going to the Rogers video with my dad and uh, finding some random movie to watch uh, with my video movie guide by what's his name, Richard Chickle? No, um, Leonard Malton. Leonard Malton's movie guide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Richard and, Le- and Leonard. You just picked up a camera. It seems like. Yeah, and. In when I was in you know age eleven, I was in one of those gifted programs, uh, which really in my case meant like I didn't fit in with other students because you know I grew up on the autism spectrum, and I was there was a thing you can make a movie, so I made one and it turned into Mission Difficult. Yeah, how did you get started in film, Will? Uh, it's a bit easier. My brother took like uh was in a film program, and uh, I looked up to my brother, um, and I would. When he got more into film, I was like, okay, cool. I can get more into film. And uh, it's just been sort of an upward trajectory since then, I think, of uh, of just implanting deeper and deeper into liking movies. And I mean, part of the question is like, and this gets into the how did we get started in film is I, I think part of this is implicitly how do you get started making films? Apologies if I'm mm. misunderstanding the question. And yeah, I th- I think, I mean, maybe I'm speaking for you, but I feel like our making films to this day is kind of just a continuing escalation of the same spirit of making Mission Difficult, where <laughs> it's not, for us, making films is something that we do out of curiosity and enthusiasm, largely. Um, yeah, I, I find that we... we re- <laughs> We were like films we, we we direct. We rarely release, <laughs> like in a real way. We play them at a few festivals, but they're all kind of sitting there. And I, this is a good reminder to ourselves: let's release those movies sometimes. But um, I think the year of the release. I honestly think we value the experience of experimentation of making the film much more than we do people actually seeing that film. Right. Uh, which maybe that's a character flaw. I don't know. Um, but I think we should ta- mention how we met, which is at a place called Gulf Island Film School, which is recently closed. Yeah. Um, and um, it was more of a summer camp for teenagers who wanted, you know, were film curious. We happened to be stuck in the same animation basement together for a week, and we kind of didn't like each other. Yeah. For years, <laughs> you maintained that you did not dislike me until your your dad set the record thoroughly straight. <laughs> no, I didn't dislike you. Um, so, you did. Um, no, I didn't. <laughs> 
so but no that then we kind of you know became friends by our mutual uh social alienation over the internet and started watching movies by synchronizing them by pressing the space bar at the same time um and sending messages to react to them and i think everything's kind of stemmed from that yeah and then i had a very very bad year when i first moved away from home and uh after two bad years and then you told me you should uh, come take and join the same film program that I've been in for a year. And then I did. And then we started making more movies together. And that's it. That's it. And we just made we just keep doing stuff together, making or talking about movies. Yep. Next question. Next, next question. Um, you go. Prognosticate on where micro budget filmmaking in Canada is going. Wild speculations are encouraged. And I love this question, not only for its encouragement of uh, wild speculation, but because um, prognosticate has has an air of um, of unself seriousness that really really unleashes us here. So I, I I thought I had a better idea of this exactly ten months ago. <laughs> right. Um, and now I have less of an idea because COVID down the everything. drain. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I think everything's going down, man. But no. Um, uh, can I give my answer? Yeah, of course. I think I think we're gonna see just further. Um, a further democratization of aesthetic features that have mostly been relegated to large budget films. Yeah. Um, we're already seeing incredible amount of that. Like for example, uh, like when I look at like the indie film scene, it's just like Ari Alexis, which is a very high end cinema, digital camera everywhere. Um, yeah. with, you know, anamorphic shallow focus, <laughs> uh, film emulation. And I, and if it sounds like I'm being a bit ambivalent about it, it's cause I am, uh, it's the democratization both allows you to use a much wider toolkit, but it also allows a toolkit that overlaps with the really dominant forms of filmmaking, uh, mm. where I think it's great. We have that option, but it's also a temptation. Sure. I, I have a more optimistic side. I think, I think you're right. I, I think that, cause here's the thing. I mean, we're still in a place where I think a lot of aesthetic signifiers are more available on the micro budget level but to make a film that looks like most of the films that you can pre-pandemic go into a theater and see or like you know buy on demand from a major distributor or whatever um most of those films um um, still take enough money to make that they're not quite micro budget right just because the way you have to make them right like the Mm -hmm. number of crew members you need like you know you need someone for continuity and costumes and da 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 um so that that still isn't at the micro budget level because like at a certain point you just need people to do that but for me there's a lot of hope in the notion that micro budget has such crazy resources resources are just so great that there's more room than ever to make movies that don't look like other movies like we can make movies now that are equally narrative, have equal like character and stuff as a larger movie, and they just don't use those very old Hollywood industry style production methods to do it, right? Like we can invent new ones. And part of my disappointment um, with cinema, new cinema being made during COVID-19 has been that a lot of it doesn't try to reimagine those production methods uh, no it just scales them down but he's using the yeah. same methodologies um, which in fairness is hard to do right paradigms are by their nature really hard for you to break out of right <laughs> mentally oh yeah but i think there's still a lot of 
hope there for micro budget films to just like snap into this entirely new mode right like i i, <laughs> I think there's a separate question i ask myself where it's where do i want micro budget to go and that you've basically described it right which is that yeah. um because as a counter example i mean um every time the telefilm kind of you know, telefilm canada if you want more information on that uh, listen to josh's episode on vancouver cinema but episode 20 um, no it's episode 19 all oh, right <laughs> that. Um, we'll leave that in uh, <laughs> but no um the uh so telefilm every year gives out you know 100 to 150,000 now i think uh dollars to individual micro budget features and that is not enough to pay a full crew for like the three weeks it takes to shoot a standard low budget feature yeah. and what that's causing is a lot of these features are you know putting up posts saying, you know, we can pay non-horarium and stuff, right? And I don't yeah. blame the people doing that at all. But um, to me, I think there's a missed opportunity there where with those micro-budget resources, you can just reimagine what you really need to make a movie and try something that's genuinely new that changes that paradigm because at that point you're not really beholden to like a studio executive over your shoulder. So that's, you know, anyone listening to this who currently has a micro-budget aspiration, uh, I would love to see. I would love to see, I'd love to see more of that, uh, more rethinking of the actual philosophy that goes into like, do we need to still be basing our films off of this notion of classical Hollywood realism that most of us base our films off of, for example? Yeah, the the example that we did that I always think about was um, when you made your last film in film school, and there's like a scene where like an expensive car has to drive at top chase. speed. Yeah, the car. Ch- it's not really. There's nothing chasing the car. The car's just They're trying to get somewhere real fast. <laughs> yeah right and um you know you uh there were two things that you did to get around the fact that you couldn't like film a camera like zooming alongside the car or whatever um one is to just shoot through uh the windows of a different car as it Moving was driving speed yeah. yeah and then speed it up in post um and the other was to just intercut with um the thing that the car was driving towards so you're not actually seeing the car driving really fast, but because you're seeing like a light whiz by, you know. Yeah, you're seeing like so much kinetic motion, and there's so much contrast in the soundtrack between the two spaces. In the Verity, <laughs> and this is just like I mean, this is like uh, like intercutting that goes back to like early silent cinema, right? It, like creating tension and suspense through that, and it was like a big wake up call for me of like, oh, um, right, like it. You might need to somewhat reimagine the specifics of how something Mm -hmm. plays out but like we have so many narrative tools at our disposal to get across certain things that we just don't use because we assume that oh the audience isn't going to be engaged if i don't do this the way that like bullet did it or whatever you know yeah uh you know this makes me think um we're on a q a so i can go on tangents um Mm -hmm. that film's paradiso which was my grad film and um i don't think it's a good movie it's you know made it when i was young and not very good at my job but i like that um, movie I like it. I very close to my heart, but what I really miss is I wish I still had that manic creative energy and self-confidence to like do something so wacky and sincere. Um, uh, maybe one day. 2021 might be a good year for that. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> Hopefully. We'll see. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Is that. Do Next question. What current trends in cinema do you like? What do you dislike? Will? I mean, that, this is kind of like, in a sense, this podcast is like um, um, a decreasingly dressed up 
airing of grievances. <laughs> <Yes>. You know, <laughs> I've noticed that, and I, I like it. I'm happy with this. Um, um, so it's almost like yeah, like Cinemascope being over you or episode ten. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a other, few new ones. <laughs> other other trends. I mean, I keep thinking of stuff. Like when I get really angry about when I just come up with an excuse to do an episode about it. What bothers me? I mean, is it a trend to still be? I don't know. You know what? This is this is the only time I'm ever gonna t- get to talk about this. So, um, tank controls. <laughs> the style of <laughs> the style of film scoring, um, largely popularized by and continued Wah. by uh, Hans Blah. Zimmer and his uh, film music production group, Remote Control Productions formerly media ventures uh is just endlessly irritating to me like i i and i'm not saying this i don't think that zimmer is talentless by any stretch um his new score for a hillbilly elegy is fine um uh his score for uh blade runner 2049 i thought was pretty pretty solid um notably those are both collaborations but still credit where it's due um and he's done really good solo scores, uh, but there's just this heavy emphasis on extremely electronically processed stuff, where like the gain is just cranked on the on the orchestra, and like there's I, I won't get into it. There's all these things that he does to the recording that number one make it sound like take a lot of nuance out of the performance and recording and make it sound almost synthetic. Um, but number two, it really flattens out the ranges of his sound. But then the thing that bothers me more is that he heavily relies on these uh, rhythms. Like, he, there hasn't been, like, an original Hans Zimmer rhythm in, like, 10 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he just has these rhythms and kind of switches up some of the orchestration and kind of, like, puts over somewhat new melodies. But then the other problem is that Zimmer's weakest point as a composer is that he's not very melodically complex at all. Like he just does not write very interesting melodies and not, not a killing blow. Um, but that those tendencies, because his scores became so popular and remote control production scores became so popular, those tendencies have just been subsumed by not just big budget films, but by the wider industry. Uh, and it really, really, really irritates me because, um, Anyway, you were about to say something. I have one more thing to talk about with film scoring. I was just going to say, um, as you're talking, you should like, you should record some of your own electronic versions of these, uh, <laughs> and then overlay it as you're talking. I, I, I demand it. Electronic versions of what? No, no, like, like these, these. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. I just did it. But then the other, the other. I mean, and this I think ties into. I think this is, again, a trend in film scoring, and I'm saying this because I get less opportunities to talk about this on the podcast, um, which is, I think that none of these composers I'm about to mention, I think, are bad at film composing, but I think a lot of pop artists who are switching over and or, or trying out film scoring or, or just making a career out of it are way overpraised for what their scores actually are. I mean, I I love a lot of Nine Inch Nail music. Um, I think that some of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's scores are quite good. 
some of them are not good. Um, there's a general problem with them of just kind of presenting an idea in an individual track or queue, and then it just doesn't really develop or go anywhere. And then there's no overall structure to the piece, and it doesn't really connect very much uh, conceptually or thematically to the material. And you see that, I mean, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross are the easiest people to beat up on for that. But you see that a little bit, I think, with, um, I think, Johnny Greenwood. And I his his score for, um, uh, what is it called, Phantom Thread is, I think, his best <laughs> score so far. Very, um, very good, Will. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but Michael Levy's an example of a composer who has done some really good stuff. But similarly... Her scores just don't have the kind of unity and structure that the best film scores usually do. And yet you'll see a lot of people being very quick to overpraise these scores. And I think part mm. of it is because a lot of people who praise these scores so highly don't actually dig into film scores very deeply that often. So that that bugs me quite a bit. That kind of like dueling uh, how much even a lot of otherwise good film critics will just load praise onto film scores where there's just not much going on. But a lot of the film scores that I'm talking about don't elevate the material at all or do interesting things to actually contribute new dimensions as music. And to be clear, I'm not, I'm not like against electronic film scores whatsoever. What's a good um, one? What's a great electronic film score? I've actually been spending some time trying to find like all electronic film scores that I think are great. And Van there's Jealous like... Is cheating. <laughs> well, that, yeah, I was going to say like um, 1492 Conquest of Paradise is like a fantastic score and a really good example. Um, some of Zimmer's uh, uh, mid 90s stuff, like what was that submarine film he scored? Yellow Submarine. I love that movie. The Beatles are <laughs> great. I don't uh, know. Is it Crimson Tide? I think it is. Crimson Tide is not entirely electronic, but like that it leans on it more heavily and i think it's very good i'm i mean jerry goldsmith's my favorite film composer and um his electronic stuff is great um like the burbs has some sections that are overwhelmingly electronic and it's incredible there's great electronic scores out there but i do think that a lot of the time when composers sit down to do an electronic score a lot of the time they're coming at it from like pop music or pop albums and mm -hmm. so they they just aren't used to thinking about like this overarching narrative structure the same way that a lot of film composers do thank you uh dear listener for giving me an excuse to uh you only answered half the question though uh what well, current trends do you like what current trends do i like oh we have to yeah. we have to we have to have our yin to our yang here you should answer the like part because i just dominated right. the airwaves well i have an answer for both haha <laughs> um so i'm gonna start with what i dislike then i'm gonna finish on a positive note what i dislike right now is trends as a thing. I just am anti-trend and the current trend is film emulation. And I talk a lot about this and I engage in it. I did a big tweet storm about it, but um, I find that uh, virtually all digital content right now, content is in some way processed to look like film. And I, I like that as a thing in and of itself. I think it's really cool, but when everything is kind of giving Essentially, the word cinematic has, you know, come to resemble the word filmic more and mm. more closely. And I really want to push back against this idea that film and the way film look 
in exactly the year 1972 is is uh is not some sort of end-all be-all for what i want people to be striving for for how their movies look i yeah i mean this is my current like uh punching bag i don't know one of our guests uh, cam uh had a tweet the other day where he uh said that he would take the cinematography that he thinks that the snowman um you know um mr police you could have saved her i give you all the clues the snowman yeah, the um, thomas alfredson's masterpiece yeah yeah the the huge bomb uh has better cinematography than any marvel cinematic universe movie and even acknowledging that there are there are marvel movies with solid cinematography um i think snowman that's completely has more true interesting cinematography i do think the snowman cinematography fails in a whole lot of ways in yeah. terms of like things like basic geometry and scene coverage <laughs> like the the movements the camera movements in that movie are beyond terrible totally um, but what of- i'm getting <laughs> at is that it's so digital and it does it digital it does things with a digital aesthetic that i had never seen before that movie yeah well i mean that is dion beep who uh yeah had this actually dion one of the BB. most is it dion beep or dion bb yeah anyways <laughs> um no dion bb uh the, the guy shot collateral yeah <laughs> and like and, and, he knows and, how um, to make things look different uh, but he knows how to re- revolutionize digital cinematography he's done it yeah. and yeah i I, th- I absolutely am in line philosophically with what cam is saying even though in the case of the snowman i have questions um <laughs> so what do i like um one current trend in especially smaller budget indie filmmaking in the communities i kind of interact with is that i think the advent of cheap led lighting that has rgb diodes which means that they can emit any color in the in the visual spectrum it's really easy to get led lights now which are a modern form of lighting that's distinct from like incandescent lighting uh or halogen lighting in older forms um it's easy to get lights now that basically can emit a wide variety of colors in the visual spectrum very easily so i'm seeing a lot of cinematographers now use many different colors and radical color schemes in their lighting much much more commonly now so i'll see you know a low budget indie film with like really wonderful use of like blue highlights or like you know red and and stuff like that and you know to the point when it's starting to become almost like a cliche um uh, a guy named darcy who uh, i worked with on a music video i shot earlier this year um uh, posted an instagram story that i thought was very funny where uh, he, he he um there's this trend in especially like commercials music videos with like a red flare lighting the foreground of someone at dawn so it's like red right. foreground blue background it's just omnipresent now and yeah. uh, darcy rightfully you know called for an end to that and uh, mm-hmm. i want to i want to echo that call uh <laughs> it's uh so you know point being though um it has gone to the point when yes it's a trend now but i think it's a trend that is a corrective to a much it's worse trend. It's a liberating trend. trend. <laughs> it is sure. a liberating trend. And I think once it all settles out and the novelty of RGB lighting becomes just part of the toolkit, it'll probably just be a thing that people can use in the future, which I'm really excited about because it used to be genuinely difficult to achieve colored lighting on a film set on a low budget because you would use a normal daylight or tungsten source and have to gel it which would cut down on the source's power hugely which means you have to light with 
larger lights and play with gels all day and it's it was a pain and now it's like hey i can press a button on my app get a bright pink background it's genie so you're free um, uh, and that's like yeah. uh, i'll give my positive trend I, i've got one is uh, i like that 1.33 to 1 uh is getting more normalized for similar reasons yeah absolutely more um, aspect and I, ratios and there are certain people we know, Nathan, who think that it's becoming a bit of an overused cliche. And I, I don't think Nathan's wrong. Um, but um, not uh, more of an overused cliche than uh, any other popular aspect ratio. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I do think that like Cinemascope is has it will never be topped. Maybe as an overused cliche. <laughs> um, next question. Next question. Uh, oh no! Actually, no. I, I so just literally before we recorded this. Um, uh, a guy named Corey tweeted th- tweeted this, and then Sophie, past and future guest, tagged me in a comment, and I think that this actually folds into this conversation very well. Um, Corey tweeted, one day I'll crack the code of why most Canadian television looks and feels the way it does, and then I'll write about it. To me, this is really interesting, <laughs> because um, the idea that Canadian kind of television film has a certain look is something that I've been you know, pretty vocal about, uh, for as long as I've been watching Canadian films. And to me, I think, I don't think there's a single answer. I think it's a whole bundle of circumstances, but I think the fact that Canada is largely a service provider for American films means that a lot of people with the, in Canada, with the resources to make television and film tend to that's tend to emulate what Hollywood's doing. We talked about this again in the Josh episode a bit more philosophically, but in terms of what it leads to is, you know, a rigorous adherence to three point lighting, uh, extremely standard scene coverage, uh, that sort of thing. And I don't think it's a matter of budget. I don't think it's because you can get incredible visuals that are unique on monstrously low budgets in terms of the lighting department. But I think it's a failure of imagination more than anything. Uh, that leads to this. And I think I'm a, as a sidebar to this, we're also seeing, I think, a rise, in, especially in like younger, more commercial cinematographers, of a new, extremely overwhelming aesthetic, which is that exactly what I was mentioning before, cinemascope, shallow focus, anamorphic lenses, film emulation, teal and orange, you know, singularity of 70s, mid-70s film stock. And I think that is going to overtake <laughs> maybe even that kind of overlit three-point aesthetic uh in the canadian industry at some point just because it's becoming such a trend and i don't know i find that really interesting and so as, as far as why it is the way it is again uh people have certain traditions within locations that they follow and canadian film traditions are largely rooted in warmed over american film traditions <laughs> Um, does that make sense, Will? Yeah, man. Not a question asked of our podcast, but I thought it f- fit in this conversation very well. We respond to it nonetheless. A bonus. Bonus for all bonus. of you. Free bonus. Um, so next question. You seem to be open-minded about cinematic techniques as long as there is a contextual justification, but are there any common or not so common techniques or aesthetics that you cannot connect with? Yeah. Really? I guess two way- two ways of answering this. Um, one, I, I, I'm going to add on a question, which is, are there any techniques or aesthetics that you do connect with that don't have contextual justifications? <sighs> you know, I actually think my answer for both these is just a mirror image of each other, which is 
there's no technique that some filmmaker won't find a way to make me hate. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, I love wide-angle lenses. It's one of my most cherished things. Mm-hmm. But when I watch Les Mis, I never want to see a wide-angle close-up in my life again. And I mean the yeah, Tom sure. Hooper 2012 Les Miserables adaptation, the one that stinks. Film. Um, film. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't think there's any technique that will speak to me regardless of context. Um, just like I don't think there's any technique that I can think of, at least, and I've tried to think this one through, where I can go, you know what, this always bugs me. Like, what I wrote here was maybe drone shots to finish movies, but I'm like, no, that's a specific context <laughs> that technique is being used in. I don't hate drone yeah. shots. I just don't like it when a film ends with a gratuitous drone up, and that's a yeah. specific context. It's kind of so. where do you draw the line at technique, you know? Yeah. Using the technique of a concluding drone shot, <laughs> you know? Like, even like, that. you know, three po- standard, like what I just said in your last thing, three point lighting with standard coverage. There's a place for that. Sure. 1952 (laughs) even now hail caesar yeah i mean for me it's yeah it's very rare that i see um a technique that is like that has gotten a decent amount of mainstream exposure that i just never connect with and that's usually because before technique gets mainstream exposure and gets used in mainstream films it goes through a lot of processing in commercial or experimental or whatever spheres so for me it's more like there's absolutely like I watch experimental stuff where I like come up and go like, what the hell was that? Or like didn't connect. Don't see what was going on there. Nothing worked for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, that's part of experimentation. Right? <laughs> like you you would hope that there's if, if there's no if there's never a failure to connect to the audience then you have to question whether you're actually really experimenting. <laughs> yeah. Um, or at least whether you're taking risks. But I I've, I think I've gotten good at, absolutely there are ones that I just can't connect with, but there's none where I write them off. I really try to, if I can't connect with it, I really try to use that as an opportunity to get curious and to figure out what worked or didn't about it and whether there's a way I can connect with it. And if not, like if there's a different context where I could, but the, yeah, absolutely like experimental stuff. Uh, like uh, what going to see a Godard movie like this this happens to me constantly right and sometimes I end up not a, not thinking it worked at all and sometimes I'll think oh man that worked great but like there will always be many points in the film where I think like what the hell is this <laughs> this this is doing nothing for me <laughs> your turn for the next question oh right uh how fruitful do you think it is to discuss montage camera movement and visual composition as discrete elements. What do you think are the appropriate limits for separation or requirements for conciliation of these elements in analysis and discussion? A good question. A very good question. An overwhelmingly good question. So, I have an answer to that. Sure. (laughs) Um, I tend to view separating out individual elements into these, you know, boxes of, you know, montage, camera movement, visual composition. I tend to view it more as a necessary evil than anything else, just so we can break our discussions into humanistic pieces, right? So we don't just have a discussion that by, you know, by necessity will last 48 hours at a time or whatever. Um, If I could, I would not draw any lines between any of those because I, yeah, I think they're all 
it's like an apparatus where each of them has an impact on the others and are all kind of part of a continuum. But so it's all arbitrary, these delineations, but to me, they're there just for ease of access. Yeah, I would, I, I totally agree with that. And I would expand on that saying that the appropriate limits are entirely determined by the structure and form of the film itself. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so the reason why we discuss these things um, as discrete components, I think, is often that that is how the film is being made, right? And films tend to be made thinking, okay, what is the composition of the shot? Okay, how does that affect the montage? Okay, how does camera movement play into those? Right, like that is often the thinking process of a filmmaker, mm-hmm. a film that um, both of us use often um, to challenge uh, some of these distinctions is Speed Racer by the Wachowskis, which often has shots where they'll like an object will wipe the frame or even a piece of landscape will wipe the frame and they'll they'll be wiping all over. But because the space isn't of the of the actual scene isn't um, ultra concrete in the first place. It's not like they're wiping to a new coherently uh, formed space. They're just rewriting our spatial understanding of the scene on the fly with all these different elements. Um, and so because of that, like sometimes in Speed Race, the question of like, okay, where is the edit, right? Like how many shots per second in this like 60 seconds of Speed Racer becomes effectively impossible to answer because you can't separate out individual shots. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the case of that film, you have to almost develop a new language in order to in order to discuss these things, right? Or you have to imagine different standards for what composition is or is doing, right? Like, because you have to more actively consider montage on a more theoretical level than we're used to talking about it, right? So that's that's kind of how I think about it. Like the film determines the limits uh, or requirements for separating or or um, what do you say, consolation of these elements. Continuum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's, I mean, that's uh, it's a bit of a dodge saying it's case by case, I guess, but mm-hmm. like that's just that's just the truth. But that's what's exciting about film, right? Like, is that every film presents the new challenge of understanding how it's working. And like even the most machine produced uh, garbage often has uh, fine details that distinguish it in meaningful and surprising and interesting ways from other stuff. Um, So there's always a good excuse to enjoy a movie as long as you're curious about those things. Next question. (laughs) Yeah. That was good. We're getting through the questions well. Mm -hmm. Um. Any thoughts on the authorship of posthumously, posthumously? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, you nailed it. Any thoughts on the authorship of posthumously released films that were completed after the director's death, such as The Other Side of the Wind and Eyes Wide Shut? Well, yeah, totally. Um, and those are two really good examples. Because uh, they're so different. Very different. Eyes Wide Shut. I mean, I think the general consensus is he was, it was done, like he was done it right before he died. Um, really? I've, I've heard a lot more discord on that one. Right. Well, if he wasn't done, he was like, it's an extremely well-polished film. Yeah, either way. Right. I mean, it's a lot more done than The Other Side of the Wind. 
Yeah, <laughs> I mean, as far as the authorship of Eyes Wide Shut, I think it's like, I think it's open and wide shut, <laughs> where it's got, it's just Kubrick, right? Like, it was like, I don't think anybody really messed with it much, if at all, after Kubrick's death, uh, to my knowledge. It was pretty much put out as he had it at the time. Um, but on the case of The Other Side of the Wind, like, where it was like, over 40 years um, between that film starting to be shot and that film getting released, I think almost 50 years from the act beginning of production to the final release. Like there were different editor. There was like a, a different editor had to work on it and like a bunch of different people had input and But stuff it, it like wasn't that. in any structured form before that, was it? Yeah. Like, I mean, Orson like there's always never a- actually did a rough cut during his life, did he? Yeah, there wasn't like a finished rough cut of the film for right. sure. So, it, and that's to me the big difference. Where at the very least, Eyes Wide Shut was assembled in a way that was guided by Kubrick while he was still alive, and Other Side of the Wind was assembled by people working in good faith to, I, th- I think, to um, assemble what Kubrick would sorry to assemble what Wells would have wanted. Yeah, uh, and I think um, one thing that I really respect though about other side of the winds edit is that there are very smart implicit acknowledgments of wells's um non presence for the finalization of the film like uh my favorite single edition is like maybe the biggest one where um where peter bogdanovich reads the narration that was originally going to be read by wells himself um which besides being extremely like appropriate to like Bogdanovich is a filmmaker who himself has gone through like quite a decline in his career since its peak and uh, to boot um, uh, has gone through a lot of hardship in just getting the other side of the wind released. Um, But he mentions uh, that like, you know, this was a time before cell phones could record everything. Right. Which completely Mm -hmm. recontextualizes the film into like a 2018 movie. And I love that about it. And people talk often about uh, how, like, it's not like they decided that every scene that Wells shot had to go into the film, which besides being, like, Im- impossible, it's not like it was just the improvised material, but there were, like, scenes, dramatic scenes that were written between characters that they cut. Um, mm-hmm. Number one, with the knowledge that Wells would very well have, like, cut certain stuff himself, but also the willingness to um, trust their own aesthetic impulses which is a dangerous thing when you're dealing with like Orson Welles's unfinished film especially when you're dealing with film restoration yeah and uh, but that's the thing it's an unfinished film so there's more license to do that and they like I mean that finished film is just incredible and so well edited in mm. general um so Bob Murawski uh edited the stuff that Wells wasn't around to edit um and I, I think the entire film is extraordinarily well edited and Bob Murawski is like a great editor. But like my favorite moments of editing in that film, I went back and checked after the fact and they're like Wells's, right? So it's, it's there is something to say for um, uh, the distinction in authorial power, if not in the thrust of the film itself, which I think is extremely well carried off and faithful to what Wells intended, than in the quality in certain ways. Not not a knock on the film's uh, finished product, just like only Orson Welles can edit a film like Orson Welles, ultimately. Yeah. 
But there's other examples, yeah. right? Like an elephant sitting still, I wrote down as an example where That was like, finished, wasn't it? Uh it was I think it was very near finished, but I don't know if we know exactly where it was at. Mm. Um Touch of Evil is like a, the, it, the film that keeps giving as far as podcast examples go for us, but right where it's another Wells one, the where at least they had his um memo and they just followed They had a memo closely. and the studio interfered and then later on after his death, you know, other folks tried to bring the film back to yeah. his original vision and that but, memo itself though wasn't this is my ideal film it was wells's compromise right his yeah yeah um his attempt to fix it as much as he thought was realistic after the rough cut and then like the thief and the cobbler and um dreaming machines uh or dreaming machine respectively by richard williams and satoshi khan who both died before they could finish them they're both animations and it's like okay even if you finish them faithful to the style um like those are films that were mid-production or very early production, even when they were uh, when their production was halted. So, would they still be films by it? So yeah, I know it's again it's case case by case, but it is interesting to think about these things um, and try to challenge your own assumptions about the authorship of what you're watching because it's too easy to just uh, lay back and cruise down auteur theory lane. <laughs> What does that even mean, Will? Um, <laughs> next question. Uh, yeah, next question. Um, more of a prompt. Or no, this is you. More of a prompt, but I'd like Devin to wax poetic about 1.66 for a few minutes. No. What was the last movie you watched and was it good? <laughs> oh, I, I mean, what's a way to approach this, Will? Um, 166. What do we like about 166? Well, I actually find like... So 166, what is that? It's 1.66 times wide as it is high. What you, wait, you know what 1.6 um, is. Yeah, yeah, I Are know. I'm stalling? just defining. I'm defi- yes. Right. Um, I don't know. Um, What's the I movie you love the look of that's shot in 1.66? Let's talk about that. I mean, Chunking Express. Uh, that's just because that's the last one I watched in 166. But no, I think um, 166 is very nice because it's a aspect ratio that is very good for framing human faces uh while still leaving enough space on the sides of that frame of a human face assuming it's a medium close-up to allow for counterpoint in the rest of the frame if you need it um there's enough verticality to allow for you know verticality in your frames it's not like cinemascope where you're basically stuck in a horizontal plane but it's also not like 133 to 1 or academy ratio where you don't quite have enough horizontal space to play with to do you know really dynamic two shots without doing a lot of creative framing um so it's it's just a really flexible aspect ratio similar i kind of put it as a similar ratio to 178 185 as those nice slightly middle of the road ratios that are great for a whole lot of types of movies and uh, you can't really go wrong with it um i like it that was very non-poetic it was prosaic but you know well, I, I, I'd, I'd bring up that like Barry Lyndon is kind of the go-to and it's like aspect ratio history is kind of the go-to example of oh yeah, 1.66 to 1 and its assets because, well, I'll let you say. Yeah, well, what, Barry Lyndon was shot, it was composed for 166 um, and what's the guy's name, that, that dude who... Leon Vitale? Yeah, Leon Vitale claims it's framed for 185, which is... Very he was untrue. proven wrong, objectively. Proven wrong. 
but essentially if you watch it in if you watch it on the old blu-ray which was 1781 uh it's just kind of a disaster um all the frames that were closed are now open there's border merges in the top and bottom the compositions feel unbalanced and to me and but to me that shows less of a that says less about the strengths of 166 than it does about intentionality and framing, right? Mm -hmm. Where the intended framing is so clearly better than the revisionist framing that it's not even close. But the strengths, I feel like the strengths are reflected in uh, the intentionality, right? Where the opening shot's the classic example where um, uh, there's, uh, it's a very wide shot of a duel and uh, there's trees and there's this, um, this uh, low wall, like this uh, stone wall, uh, yeah. running through the it's center a good of the shot. frame, and so you get that grad filter on the top. Ooh. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's like one of the greatest opening shots. And um, what's great about it in one point six six to one is it's not even. It doesn't seem like the two ratios are that different, but in one point six six to one, you see enough uh, more of the overhead branches of the tree. You see enough more of the trunk of the tree at the bottom. You see enough more at the bottom of that stone wall winding its way up the frame that the verticality of the frame just gets more influence above and below the action, which is in this very narrow and wide uh, kind of plane between these two men. Mm-hmm. And what's great about that is that it, it works thematically so well in that a big part of what the film is about is about how the struggles of individuals um, and their and their quarrels and their petty fights and or their triumphs or failures are all so small set against um, the the enormity of the world and history and and nature and the planet right like that's a major theme of Barry Lyndon and when you're setting that huge amount of depth and verticality that get heavy, more heavily emphasized in the 1.66 framing of the shot, um, when you set that against the extremely narrow and flat um, plane that uh, that their duel is taking place on visually, uh, it just works better. It works great. Yeah. And, Thank, and thanks for waxing poetic. And that's, yeah. And like 1.66 allows both the horizontality, horizontality of that uh, of that Is that duel. a word? And the verticality of the uh, of the trees and the stone to coexist. So it's a good it's a good ratio for that. Yeah, yeah. horizontality is a word, and it's yeah. so useful for talking about composition stuff. Yeah, this this was actually a good distinction between my slightly. Whenever I deal with a specific technique, I tend to be so materialist and literal about it. <laughs> right. You know, where I'm just like, well, it's this ratio. Um, that's that, and I maybe and will am I a boring filmmaker? Not at all. Oh, no. <laughs> um, what was the last movie you watched, and was it good? Will? Uh, yeah, um, I'll answer in reverse order. Yes, absolutely. It was great, and maybe the best movie I've seen this year. Uh, what and movie? Vitalina Varela uh, by uh, Pedro Costa. Wow. I mean, uh, best movie, is that a 2020 movie? Uh, yeah. Oh, so is yeah. that the best movie you've watched this year or the best movie that came out best this year? Best movie I've watched, and I'm like, I'm just getting into catch-up phase now, baby. No, 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 best movie as in, sorry, best movie, like, it's better than The Godfather? Oh. No, no, oh, I'm actually asking, I'm not no, trying it's to be not, No, it is okay. not better than The Godfather. <laughs> okay, it's so. Not, I, I, well, more to the point, it's not better than Godfather 2. 
But, uh, <laughs> well, but, but, you know, but you know what I mean? I don't have what, hindsight what, and years of time yeah. between viewings to marinate <laughs> on and stuff. But like, at, no, as of now, my critical assessment is Vitalina Varela is not better than The Godfather Part 2. But the best 2020 movie you've seen. It's, it, I, I think it is right now. Yeah. Cool. That's great. I'll watch it. Michael Snydell at the film stage recommended that one. Thank you, Michael. Go ahead. Oh, boy. The last movie I watched was Wild Mountain Time. <laughs> and was it good? Oh, oh, oh. It was, it was um, directed by John Patrick Shanley. Oh, boy. So I, I only watched this film because um, uh, a couple of people uh, messaged me saying, have you heard about this movie? And I'm like, <laughs> no. And they're like, you you might you Have might you find the twist the twist intriguing and and oh boy um have you you haven't watched it will have you i still have not seen it still okay. don't know the twist should i so, take my headphones off and walk away and not no, edit this part um i'll just say bleep <laughs> <laughs> no but like okay so basically wild mountain time is a romantic comedy melodrama thing um it's bizarre anyways uh the first like hour is mostly remarkable because they get a bunch of english one irish and some american actors to do just the worst stage irish i've ever heard of it it, tim brayton described it as uh it it makes the quiet man sound like a documentary and that's pretty much it (laughs) um it's it's so so bizarre these accents but anyways there's a certain twist during a 20 minute climactic conversation scene in the middle of the film of this and romantic dramedy for children <laughs> and i'm gonna um, take off my headphones skip ahead 15 seconds if you don't want to hear the twist folks i will i'm not i'm not saying the twist well <laughs> i'm not gonna say a twist because you're gonna hear it in editing um, no, i'll skip i'll skip ahead no anyways um <laughs> so I, was, I was gonna speak in general terms you moron sure um so there's a 20 minute dialogue scene that climaxes in a moment that is one of the most bewildering, amazing reveals I've ever seen in a film. Uh, it is absolutely bonkers. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know what, like me and Anya have been joking about it for the past like five days because we cannot get enough of how wacky this was. Um, you should watch it and tell me what you think because Oh boy. Um, and everyone watching this, I, I, I almost never say this about movies, but you should all pay to see this movie. <laughs> it is one of the, we need more is, movies like this to get me. It's, it's an antidote to how shitty life feels. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, wow, it's just, a, it's, it, it's a disaster. The movie self, Emily, it, it, it drops a nuclear bomb in its own, in its own plot and doesn't seem to, understand that it sounds so <laughs> it's it's amazing anyways uh wild mountain time uh, i recommend it one and a half stars <laughs> okay uh, yeah is it um, this year's rise of skywalker oh no rise of skywalker is a much better movie <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Um, no there's nothing in this film that is competent beyond no there's nothing <laughs> there's that one shot that you posted that looked pretty good that but that's the moment <laughs> Yeah, that's the moment um, when Jamie Dornan says something that will ripple through the ages. Um, So, um, so one good, one bad. No, this movie was great. It's it's incompetent (laughs) and terrible, but it's great. You Um, gave it one and a half stars. It's great. Um, What plans do you have for upcoming seasons? Well, I mean, I think there's two ways to 
oh, there's a lot of ways to tackle this question. One is what kind of things we want to talk about. Um, we have some stuff that we kind of got in the pipeline that I'm excited about. You know, we're, we want to do an episode or two on the restoration uh, fan or otherwise of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, I want to do an episode on Street Fighter, uh, the movie. <laughs> we're, we're doing uh, one. We've had we've had poor Brom waiting for ages to do an episode about the anti-masterpiece after last season. Yeah. We're going to do um, that. We're going to do that. Uh, I would love to do... Um, I'd love to do an episode on film emulation, finally. Uh, a documentary epistemology. Um, Whenever Justice League comes out, you can bet your ass we're doing an episode on that. Oh, yeah. Um, then there's a number of other episodes where we're developing them right now with various guests that I don't really want to say Can't on air. Spoil them. Well, no, it, it's more that, you know, sometimes they don't happen because of some one reason or another. And I'd hate to, I'd hate to put our guests on the spot. So, uh, those are kind of the things that I'm really into talking about right now. Um, yeah, we also got some like ideas for a themed season that we're slowly kind of getting together. It, it kind of got thrown by the wayside, like a, even a short, like mini season of five episodes, but like we're under heavier, um, quarantine now, uh, than we were, when we were planning for that, so yeah, it got um, delayed. We were going to do that for the next season, but now it's like, ah, we'll yeah, wait. <laughs> we'll wait till the spring or summer on that one. But yeah, yeah. I want, I, I kind of had the idea to um, to do a half season uh, based around uh, the film The Five Obstructions, where we wouldn't talk about the film The Five Obstructions, but we would uh, get people to um, give us obstructions in terms of actually recording the episodes. So, for example, one I thought was we have to be like literally outdoors and walking recording one or running um and that would be an episode about camera movement <laughs> one i and had was an epistolary podcast <laughs> where epistolary we ascend we effectively write each other letters uh through individual non-live recordings uh for the entire podcast that would be amazing yeah and uh, one i want to do an episode where neither of us actually appear on the show <laughs> yeah um and so the five instructions for those of you who don't know is a um Lars von Trier slash Jorgen who Jorgen Leth. Um, oh, never saw it. What? You went to SFU too. I didn't see it. So the five, it. the five instructions is a Lars von Trier. Wow, I got it right. Um, Lars von Trier Jorgen Leth film, uh, in which von Trier gives Jorgen Leth um a series of challenges. Uh, and he has to make movies, you know, with specific requirements. Uh, those requirements are he has to make a film in Cuba. <laughs> uh, he has to. Ma- remake it in the worst place in the world he has to repeat it again like it he has to make it as a cartoon so that sort of thing um and i want to do a series of podcast episodes like that we'll keep going uh, i i find that a lot of the topics we choose are just us talking about what we feel in any given moment and that's really hard to predict yeah uh so like i mean like we did for example american utopia because i was just really into concert films for a bit um we did lighting motivation because i was really into lighting motivation for a bit um we did uh fail safe because will was in in the mood for it you know yeah (laughs) so it's a lot of our episodes are just like hey i'm really feeling enthusiastic about talking about this right now let's ride on that yeah and that's what that's what we try to get our guests into as well is uh and they come on and talk about something that they're just amped about. I want to do a full hour-long episode where uh, everything's auto-tuned. <laughs> no, no, never. Yes. Never. Of course. I mean, what, not, what, what are we here for if not that? Not ever. Not once. Man, I'm going to find a way to do that. Not for five minutes. Not for 
I, well, maybe five I, seconds. I see more solo episodes coming. Um, <laughs> no, I'll come with something new. Something new. Uh, like I'll do a vocoder or something. Or oh gosh, <laughs> I'll oh, record boy. it like like heroes, where I'll be differing distances from the mic. <laughs> It'll just sound bad. That'll I know, but so does heroes. <laughs> that's true. No, that's, that song sounds great. Um, it is a good song. It is. All right, that's that's it. That's all that's the questions. Do we have any more, any announcements? When are we coming back, Will? I don't know. Uh, January. January. We're coming back in January. Um, coming back in Jan. As far as, far as the actual date goes, uh, probably early January, but we'll see. Uh, I think it mostly depends on our recording schedule. Um, yeah. Like, full disclosure, we are in the midst of a horrifying pandemic. Yeah. And it, it is at its height. And um, I think there's no real accounting for the amount of honestly, like crazy burden that's placed on virtually everyone yeah <laughs> right now mentally um yeah like us and guests and like it's fun like during the sort of spring and summer it was kind of easier to get this podcast going but i think right now we're at once moving into more regular professional stuff and um dealing with a particularly intense part of the pandemic so. even kind of um getting guests to come on the show is honestly been it's been a bigger struggle than usual, both because I think of our own like insularity right now and everyone else's. Um, it's just uh, people are generally scared right now and that's fine. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's justified. Uh, and so, yeah, like usually, you know, in the spirit of being a professional podcast institution, which we are, um, uh, I would, we would have a date nailed down for our start time, but, um, I can definitely say January, but you know, we could be doing an episode every two weeks for a little bit. Um, that sort of thing. So yeah, we'll keep y'all, our listeners posted on that. I wanted to be open about that, that this is a really hard time for everyone right now and that's okay. Yep. I, I completely agree. So please everyone out there stay safe. Um, uh, do what the health officials tell you if they're recommending you do a smaller gathering please do that if um, you're in New Zealand or otherwise um, what's the other Eastern Asian country that's doing great right now is South Korea still doing awesome mm, there's better um, if you're doing it in a nation that's doing great then uh, if you're in a nation that successfully suppressed the virus great uh, have a great holiday time with your family if not uh, stay safe please Stay safe, hang in there, have the best holiday you can. Yeah, stay safe mentally and physically. Truth. All right. Paige Smith is our associate producer. Thank you for listening uh, to this past season, to this intermission episode. You can still rate us and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to be using that allows it. You can help us keep going over at patreon.com slash as you may know, we're on social media, over on Twitter, over on Facebook, over at Instagram. You can find us at Film Formally. As should be better understood now, this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the indigenous nations of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Bye-bye, folks. When are we going to break into the Polish market? My in-laws must hear this. Um, find a find a Polish person who will, can talk film form. <laughs> I tried to get Slavomir Itchyak on. I really did. They didn't. <laughs> his agent did not get back to me. Um, All right, I'm going to stop recording. All right, me too.